Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 30th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here now for at least one week, because I'm not quite sure yet about next weekend, we will return to our commentary on the first epistle of John. Preparing this program and running short on time, the balance of this epistle of John might be better in three shorter podcasts, rather than the two longer ones I had hoped for when I began my writing yesterday morning. It just wasn't possible. So this is part eight of our commentary, and it is titled, The Discerning of Spirits. At the end of our last presentation in this commentary, which was titled, Dichotomies, False and True. We presented the first few verses of 1 John chapter 4, where the apostle had explained one aspect of a true and quite significant dichotomy that existed in his time, and which, of course, is still found in our world today. That is the fact that not all spirits or people, come from God, as John was referring to embodied spirits when he wrote that passage, and not to disembodied spirits. There he had professed that the embodied spirits, which did not come from God, are the source of many false prophets, which had already gone out into society, and that collectively, they are the Antichrist, which is already now in society. So once again, here we shall repeat that passage, which is found in the first three verses of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh, because many false prophets have gone out into society. For the same reason, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul had written of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Evidently, they were false brethren because they did not belong in the first place. Likewise, in his one epistle, Jude had warned of certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. And we see that having been condemned even before they crept in unawares, neither could they have been from of Yahweh. In his second epistle, Peter issued a similar warning. Now John continues to speak of these same spirits, or people, and in his own way, he warns his readers about them. By this you know the spirit of Yahweh. Each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh is from of Yahweh. And each spirit which does not profess Yahshua is not from of Yahweh. And this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard that it comes and is already now in society. Here John continues the discussion, which he had begun in chapter 3 of this epistle, if not sooner, and which we had described as separating the wheat. As it is recorded in John chapter 10, Yahshua Christ had told his adversaries that you believe not because you are not of my sheep. So we would not expect them to profess that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh. Yet even earlier, where John had first mentioned an Antichrist in chapter 2 of this epistle, discussing Christ and Antichrist, we sought to explain what the apostle had meant by the profession that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh as it is not merely a reference to the man called Yahshua or Jesus. Rather, by merely uttering the words, Yahshua Christ, one is making a specific reference to his nature 
rather than merely to his person. And by using the reference, one is making a direct admission concerning the true nature of his person. In the Gospel accounts, Christ was often called Yahshua, or perhaps, if you will, Jesus of Nazareth. So the Jews identified him by that name, rather than as Christ. And for that reason, in the book of Acts, the Jews are depicted as referring to Christ as a Nazarene, where his followers are described as the sect of the Nazarenes in Acts chapter 24, so that they could avoid using the terms Christ and Christians. In ancient times, words had greater value than they seem to have today. Today, words are cheap. People throw words around like they're nothing. In ancient times, the mere utterance of a title was an acknowledgement of the authority which the title represented. So it is apparent that the enemies of Christ would not call him Christ, because that alone would be an acknowledgement that he was the Messiah of Israel. Every man has come in the flesh. But the title Christ represents the promises made to the children of Israel of a Messiah. And according to the prophets, that Messiah would not only be a particular son of God, but also Yahweh God himself come as Savior and Redeemer of his people, professing that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh, is a profession that Yahweh God has been manifested in the flesh, as that is the promise of the prophets. But only Judeans and other Hebrews, who had the traditions of Scripture, could have known these things. So John's warnings best fit the historical circumstances of his own time. And his label of Antichrist is for the Jews who had claimed to be the people of God, but who were actually Edomites and Canaanites, the not-my-sheep of John chapter 10, whom Paul had explained in Romans chapter 9, were not truly of Israel. They were not his kinsmen according to the flesh. Furthermore, since Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, then the world which he came into was the same world described in the wisdom of Solomon, where he had said in chapter 18, speaking of the garment of the high priest of Israel, for in a long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the father's graven. So Yahshua Christ, having told his enemies that ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, had also explained the origin of his enemies as being from of the devil, for which reason they could not have been his sheep. And that is what is found in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. It's also in John chapter 8. However, we are also informed that men could not tell apart the wheat from the tares merely by their appearance. And the apostles had marveled that Christ himself could tell them apart. As we read in the very last verse of John chapter 2, that he had no need that anyone testify concerning a man. Indeed, he knew what was in man. Speaking of the gifts which Yahweh God imparts to men, Paul of Tarsus had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in relation to the people in the body of Christ, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of services, and the same Prince, or Lord, if you will. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God who operates all things in all. And to each is given manifestation of the Spirit towards that which is advantageous. 
while to one through the Spirit a word of wisdom is given, then to another a word of knowledge, down through the same Spirit, and to another faith in the same Spirit, and to another gifts of the healings of men in the same Spirit, and to another operations of power, and to another interpretation of prophecy, and to another dissolution of spirits, or if you will, discerning of spirits, to another sorts of languages, and to another interpretation of languages. But all these things, one and the same spirit, operates dividing personally to each, to each of the children of Israel, just as he wills. That word dissolution is also correctly translated in the King James Version as discerning. Here we shall explain our translation, citing our January 2015 commentary on this portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Greek word, diakresis, is dissolution here. And in the King James Version, it is discerning. The word is a noun from the same component word as the verb diacrino. And it is defined as meaning separation, dissolution, decision, judgment by Liddell and Scott. This is being mentioned here to further illustrate the use of the verb diacrino at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, which the King James Version very wrongly rendered as judge. If Paul wanted to say judge, he would have only said crino. Diacrino is a stronger use of the word crino with a different nuance of meaning. To separate, separation or dissolution is the breaking up of something into its various components. It's a deeper inspection than merely just judging by making a decision of something as you see it or hear it. Paul actually said at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, that if we then had made a distinction of ourselves a distinction, that word diacrino. Here we have the noun diacresis as discerning or as dissolution in our translation. If the Israelites had discerned themselves, perhaps we would not be judged. 1 Corinthians 11.31 If the Israelites had made a distinction of themselves, Yahweh God had commanded that the Israelites do so. He commanded them to be a separate people. The ancient Israelites failed to make the distinction which Yahweh had commanded, for which reason they were sent into captivity and punishment. And the result is that the wheat are infiltrated with tares. The word dissolution may be a difficult choice here, referring to my translation of the term in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. However, it was chosen because it primarily means the resolution or separation into component parts, or the act or process of resolving or dissolving into parts or elements. Paul is not necessarily referring to ghostly spirits, the discerning of spirits in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but to embodied spirits, just as the Apostle John was also in chapter 4 of his first epistle. Now, this is my commentary on 1 Corinthians, bear in mind. There, John warned his intended readers to believe not every spirit, but to try the spirits, whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Being able to discern spirits, one must be able to perceive the component parts of their rhetoric, their professions and assertions, and measure them against Scripture. From there, one must be able 
to estimate their agendas and why they are not truthful according to the word of God. That is why we chose the word dissolution as a translation of diacresis here. Of course, some Christians are better and faster at determining evil spirits than others, and that is a gift from God. Ostensibly, Adam was a man, a white man, as we know white men today. But there were others present, the Nephilim, or fallen ones, who evidently appeared very much as he appeared. And the fact that they were present is attested. In Genesis chapter 6, there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. And after, the and after part refers to what happened during the flood and thereafter. But the in those days part informs us that before the flood of Noah, the Nephilim or fallen ones were already in the earth. And Jude also attests to that in his epistle, the angels who left their first estate. Yet the spirit of those others was not the same spirit as the spirit of God which Yahweh God had imparted to Adam. So Paul of Tarsus explained that the discerning of spirits is a gift from God. And here John also informs us that there are spirits which are not from God, which do not profess that Yahshua is the Christ, that Yahshua is God incarnate in the flesh as his anointed son, the Messiah, as it is prophesied in the Psalms and in Isaiah. So this is the meaning of the phrase, discerning of spirits, to be able to tell apart those who are born from above and those who are not of God. Not by their mere appearance, but by their profession. But of course, Paul and the other apostles had also warned about false brethren, about infiltrators into the assemblies of Yahweh, who would seek to corrupt them with false doctrines. This is why Paul described Esau, referring to the Edomites of Judea, as vessels of wrath fitted to destruction in Romans chapter 9. Therefore, Christ had also said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. John will once again explain that further on in this epistle, as it is another way by which to discern spirits. And because not all men are from God, the apostle now professes to his readers in the very next verse of this epistle, this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where we had stopped short in our last presentation. You are from of Yahweh, children, and you have prevailed over them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in society. Here, the use of a plural pronoun for them refers back to the singular term for Antichrist in verse 3. And, in turn, that singular term is a collective noun describing each spirit which does not profess Yahshua, which is mentioned earlier in that same verse. It is these to whom John refers, where he says, you have prevailed over them. In chapter 2 of this epistle, John had professed that these antichrists are another race of people which which is different from the race of the Israelite Judeans, but which is found among them where he had said that even now many Antichrists had been born, have been born, and then he said in the very next verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they came out from us, but they were not from of us. So the children of God, having prevailed over them, we must ask ourselves who them are if we begin with the false assumption that all men have an equal opportunity to come to Christ for salvation and redemption, something which this verse alone fully disproves. The them here were not from God 
and they're given no opportunity by John for repentance, for hearing the gospel, for accepting Christ, for changing their minds, for cajoling or persuading into repentance. They have no such opportunity. If they were brethren, if they were related brethren, or if all men are the same, accepting Christ, one does not prevail over one's brother, even if one's brother has not yet accepted Christ. However, one does prevail over those spirits which are not from God, which have rejected Christ for that reason, because they are not from him. John did not expect Christians to convert them, but he anticipated the fact that Christians prevail over them. So now he writes in reference to them once again, and he says, they are from of society, or from of the world, if you will. For this reason, from of society, they speak and society hears them. The Antichrists are not merely of the world, as even Christians may be worldly, but the Antichrists are from of the world. Their origin is with the world. For the same reason, Christ had told his adversaries in John chapter 8 that you are from of those below. I am from of those above. You are from of this society. I am not from of this society. That phrase, from of those below, is a preposition, ek, which describes source or origin. So it is from in that phrase. With a genitive plural definite article and an adverb, tone kata. Tone kata. Tone means of those. And the adverb modifies that article, and it means below. Tone kata is of those below, referring to a collection of individuals whose origin must have been in the world. Likewise, the phrase ektone ano, from of those above, refers to a collection of individuals whose origin is not of the world. All of the popular translations of John chapter 8, verse 23 ignore those plural articles which are found in each phrase. As Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 3, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. Those born from of those below do not have the spirit of Yahweh God, which he had imparted to the Adamic man. So, for that very reason, John informs his readers, We are from of Yahweh. He knowing Yahweh hears us. He who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception the Codex Alexandrinus wants the clause, he who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us, which the editors of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece plausibly attribute to a scribal error caused by the very similar ending in the last words of the clause which precedes. In other words, some scribe wrote, Here's us at the beginning of the first clause, and then going back to read the text he was copying from, he started after the second occurrence of hear us. The words are spelled the same in Greek, even though the phrases are slightly different in English. So that's a plausible error, just to illustrate some of the problems we run into with copying manuscripts. And that happens in modern times as well. Where John wrote, he knowing Yahweh hears us. He is repeating the profession of Christ, which is found in John chapter 10, where he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
ultimately, all of the sheep did hear his voice, or that of his apostles, and all of Europe became Christian. The fact alone, that fact alone proves the identity of the sheep. In addition to the historical proofs of the migrations of ancient Israel, which are also described in the books of the prophets. For that same reason, the word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 31, in relation to the promise of the new covenant, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. However, today we live under different circumstances. And while all of Europe, or all of the European peoples, had once accepted Christianity, having known Yahweh God in Yahshua Christ, and while we still live under mostly, or at least apparently, Christian laws, we still prohibit things such as stealing, murder, too bad fornication went by the wayside, and adultery with it, that's a shame. In chapter 3 of his second epistle, the Apostle Peter had warned, that knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, with scoffing going according to their own desires, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers had fallen asleep, all things continue thusly from the beginning of creation. Likewise, in his revelation, in chapter 12, the same Apostle John had a vision of a woman who fled into the wilderness from the face of the dragon which represents the same collective entity as his Antichrist here. And the woman represents the children of Israel, the sheep who would hear his voice. So there is a description of the woman being nourished for a period of time. And ostensibly, that is the receiving of the word of God, the bread of life in the gospel of Christ. However, later, in John chapter 17, I'm sorry, in the Revelation chapter 17, the apostle had another vision where he is brought back to the wilderness to see the woman a second time. And he writes, in part, And I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet beast filled with names of blasphemy and clothed in purple and scarlet, and gilt in gold and precious stones and pearls, having a gold cup in her hand full of abominations and the unclean things of her fornication. That is the same woman. It denotes the condition and circumstances of the sheep today. Ultimately, as we read in Revelation chapter 20, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever. And that word for deceived in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 is the Greek verb planeo, which is literally to cause to wander, but also to lead astray, mislead, or deceive. So in scripture, it is sometimes used in relation to sin and sinners. For example, as sheep having gone astray in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Here in this verse, in the phrase spirit of deception, the word for deception is plane, the noun form of that same word, which is literally wandering or roaming. And metaphorically, it is a going astray in error. When Cain was ejected from the presence of God, as it is described in Genesis 4.16, he went off into the land of Nod, and Nod is from a Hebrew word bearing that same meaning of wandering. The same word in the plural is wanderings. In the 56th Psalm, where David referred to his own sins and said, Thou tellest my wanderings. 
put down my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Are his sins not in God's book? A, a metaphor reflecting the mind of God. God doesn't really need a book to remember something. Here in this verse, the apostle is still writing within the context of what he had said in chapter 2 of this epistle, where he said, I have written these things to you in reference to those leading you astray. There, once again, we see that verb, planeo, where the King James Version translated the word as seduce. The land of Nod was called that for good reason, as everything which is outside of God is wandering. And even then, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, had corrupted the world, the world of that time. They continued to corrupt it in Genesis chapter 6. They continued to corrupt it in Sodom and in Canaan and in Babylon and everywhere else they have gone since. Today they're corrupting it in New York, London, Amsterdam, and every other white European city. The cities that are not white and European already having been corrupted. The Apostle Jude was speaking of the same Antichrist where he wrote, These are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees who fru whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The fallen angels are described as stars in Revelation chapter 12. And it is, not a, it is not a coincidence that in his epistle, Jude described the angels who left their first estate as wandering stars. They are not of Yahweh, but instead they are from of those below because they are the products of that wandering, having been conceived in the corruption of the creation of God. Therefore, in this manner, it is in this manner that we should one that we should understand, I'm sorry, I can't read tonight for some strange reason. Therefore, it is in this manner that we should understand the origin of the spirit of deception. So once again, John informs his readers as to how they can overcome them, the Antichrist of the world. Beloved, we should love one another because love is from of Yahweh, and each who loves has been born from of Yahweh and knows Yahweh. But this love of which John speaks is not love as it is defined by the world. Love as it is defined by the world is very often only lustful idolatry. If you love your wife, your children, your family, you care for them, you cherish them, you make sure that they're fed and clothed, that's love for your family. Keeping the commandments of God is love. And when you keep the commandments of God, you also express your love for your family, especially for your wife. Not committing adultery. Not committing fornication. John explains in the final chapter of this epistle that love is a keeping of the commandments of God. And that is Christian love. And that keeping of the commandments is how Christians should express their love for their brethren. So, in that chapter, we read, By this we know that we should love the children of Yahweh. When we would love Yahweh and, we, we, and when we would keep his commandments. For this is the love of Yahweh, that we should keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not hard not to commit fornication. It's not hard not to commit adultery. It's not hard not to murder or steal. For that same reason, in Romans chapter 13, Paul of Tarsus had written urging his readers that you owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So immediately thereafter, 
he began to recount some of the commandments of the law because where he said that he who loves another has fulfilled the law, he also meant that the keeping of the commandments was the proper expression of what love for one's brethren. So, for that same reason, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and exhorted his readers to love without acting, abhorring wickedness, cleaving to goodness. Where we translated the verb, the, the verb apostugeo, as abhorring in that passage. We may have written hating. Oddly, there are Bible dictionaries which omit the word hate from the definition of the term, as if God would never tell us to hate anything, even wickedness. Liddell and Scott define apostugeo as to hate violently, not just to hate it, to hate it violently, to abhor or to loathe something. There is nothing wrong with hate so long as men love God and men hate what God hates, which is wickedness, race mixing, homosexuality, which is really sodomy, adultery and fornication. Likewise, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 of the liberty which Christians have in Christ, by which he refers to liberty from the rituals of the law, and he said, For you have been called on to freedom, brethren, only not that freedom for occasion in the flesh. That's the Jewish version of freedom. That's the Antichrist version of freedom. For them, freedom is freedom for occasion in the flesh. It's freedom to be a fag, a pedophile, a, a race mixer, or anything else that's revolting or should be revolting to true Christians. We are not called with that freedom for occasion in the flesh. But through love you serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one statement, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself, your neighbor, which is defined in Leviticus chapter 19 as one of the children of thy people children of your own people. That is what a neighbor is, according to Scripture. This we read in Leviticus chapter 19. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So right there, a neighbor is defined as, first, your brother, and second, one of the children of your own people, one of the children of thy people. That last commandment, was called by Christ the second great commandment. So Christ must have understood that a neighbor was one of the children of thy people, and he, being God, wrote that commandment. He is that word made flesh. And he likened that second great commandment to the first, which is, Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Then, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 22, Christ also said that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. For that very reason, Paul had said that all the law is fulfilled in one statement, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Loving one's brother, one strives to keep the commandments of Yahweh. But on the contrary, now John tells us once again how to discern the spirits of the Antichrists, whom we can only expect to prevail over. He not loving does not know Yahweh, because Yahweh is love. As Christ had told his adversaries, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, Yahshua said to them, If Yahweh was your father, you would have loved me. 
For I have come from of Yahweh and am here. I have not come by myself, but he has sent me. For what reason do you not perceive my speech? Because you are not able to hear my word. So his adversaries had proven by their own insolence that they were not of his sheep. And for that reason, they did not believe him, as he had told them in John chapter 10. Because, as he had also said in that same discourse in John chapter 8, they were not of God, that God was not their father, that they were from below. They were from of those below. They did not have a choice. They did not have a choice but to be antichrists. They couldn't be anything else. And as John wrote here in chapter 2 of this epistle, they are born as antichrists. Many antichrists have already been born. Then in contrast to his adversaries, Christ had said to his disciples in John chapter 16, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and you have believed that I came out from Yahweh. In that same discourse in John chapter 15, Christ spoke of those who hated him and said, He that hates me hates my Father also. As we have said earlier in this commentary on this epistle, here John is teaching the practical application of things which he himself had learned from his gospel account. Therefore, or from the events of his gospel account, I should actually say. Therefore, evoking those words of Christ, which we have just cited from John chapter 16, John now writes, By this the love of Yahweh is manifest in us, because Yahweh sent his best-loved Son into the society in order that we may live through him. The Greek word, monogenes, may literally mean only begotten God, or only, I'm sorry, only begotten. I'm getting ahead of myself. Monogenes may literally mean only begotten, as the King James Version translated it here. This is the fifth time in John's writing that he had used this word, as it appears twice in each of chapters 1 and 3 of his Gospel. However, as we discussed in our recent commentary on John 3.16, and earlier where the term also appeared in John chapter 1, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, where Isaac is distinguished from Ishmael, and it says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman, in all that Sarah had said unto thee. Hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. We wrote this in relation to where Paul had written in chapter 11 of his epistle to the Hebrews, that by faith Abraham, being tried, had offered up Isaac, and the best beloved being offered up took upon himself the promises. In reference to whom it was said, that in Isaac shall your offspring be called. So we had also translated the term monogenes as best beloved there, rather than as only begotten, as Abraham had another and older son. Therefore, in our commentaries where the same word appears in the Gospel of John, we also said, in part, that the use of the term monogenes here referring to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, which is a Greek word that literally means only begotten, where there are clearly other sons, namely Ishmael, informs us that the term must represent a Hebrew idiom, and therefore it should not necessarily be literally translated as only begotten. The translators of the Septuagint must have understood this idiom, where they wrote, Thy son, the beloved one, in reference to Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where in the King James Version, the corresponding Hebrew was literally translated as thy son, thine only son.
So the King James translators did not understand the idiom. As John had already attested in chapter 3 of this gospel, now we are the sons of God. And since Adam is also the son of God, Luke chapter 3, verse 38, and since according to Paul of Tarsus, in Acts chapter 17, even the Jepetite Athenians are sons of God, are children of God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, Christ had taken upon himself the seed of Abraham for a reason that he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren, like Israelites who were already brethren. And because, as Paul had attested in Romans chapter 8, Christ being God, he was also firstborn among many brethren. Then, John could not have meant that Christ was the only begotten Son wherever he had used this term monogenes to describe him, or he contradicts himself. Rather, John did not contradict himself, and he was using the term according to the Hebrew idiom, which is apparent in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, and in Hebrews 11, verse 17, where it means best loved where it could not have meant only begotten. We cannot interpret John or any other writer in a manner which forces him to contradict himself when there are other viable translations that are possible and which do not cause such a contradiction. So now John explains the love of God. In this is love. Not that we love Yahweh, but that he has loved us and has sent his son a propitiation for our errors. As Paul had said, Christ died for the ungodly. I believe that's in Romans. It's a extemporaneous remark. Of course, at least most of the children of Israel had been alienated from God before receiving the gospel of Christ and certainly did not love him during that time. Yahshua Christ himself had also explained this. In John chapter 10, where John recorded him as having said, in part, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, does my Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Where Christ had said in that passage that he is known of mine. We have already seen John attest likewise above in verse 7 of this chapter where he wrote, Each who loves has been born from of Yahweh and knows Yahweh. If a man loves God, loves his brethren, and keeps the commandments, he exhibits the fact that he is born from above and can anticipate a future in the kingdom of heaven. That is the separating of the wheat, and that is the discerning of the spirits which are from of God. John elaborates on the love of God. Beloved, if Yahweh has loved us thusly, we are also obliged to love one another. In order to find out who it is that Yahweh loves, we must turn to his word in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the very passage where the promise of the New Testament is announced, we read, At the same time, saith Yahweh, this is after the scattering of Israel was discussed in Jeremiah chapter 30. At the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all of the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, now here it tells us who Israel is, the people which were left of the sword after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, 
when I went to cause him to rest. Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, nobody else but the ancient children of Israel. And thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. While he expressed it differently, Paul of Tarsus spoke of that same love which Yahweh God has for the children of Israel, and the unity which Christians should have on account of that love, in Ephesians chapter 2. But Yahweh, being rich in compassion, because of that great love of his with which he loved he has loved us, and we being dead in transgressions, a reference to the ancient sins of Israel, are made alive with the anointed. In favor you are being preserved, and are raised together and are seated together in the heavenly places with Christ Yahshua, in order that he would exhibit in the coming ages unless a man be born from above, one of these children of Israel that were caught up in sin were all born from above, in order that he would exhibit in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his favor in kindness to us among the number of Christ Yahshua. Unless a man be born from above, he can not enter the kingdom of heaven. The children of Israel born from above are raised together and are seated together in the heavenly places with Christ Yahshua, because their transgressions were cleansed. Speaking once again of the sin of Israel, the transgressions to which Paul had referred, we read in the final chapter of Hosea, chapter 14, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him meaning Israel, I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. The love of God for the children of Israel is the love which was expressed in Christ who healed their backsliding in the forgiveness of their sins. This we read in John chapter 15 in the words of Christ. In words which John attributes to Christ from verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. You abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Just as I have kept the commandments of my Father, and I abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you in order that my joy would be in you, and your joy would be fulfilled. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. A greater love than this no one has, that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. You are my friends if you would do the things which I command you. So Yahweh God himself obligates the children of Israel to love one another, as he also had done in the law in Leviticus chapter 19. The importance of the commandment is evident where Christ repeats it a few verses later and says, These things I command you, that you love one another. Once again, Paul taught this example of the love of Christ as a reason why Christians should love one another in Philippians chapter 2, where he wrote, If then there is any encouragement among the anointed, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affections and compassions, you would fulfill my joy, that you would be like-minded, having the same love, in unity having one understanding, nothing according to contention, nothing according to empty pride, but with humility, esteeming one another above yourselves." each not considering the things of yourselves, but each also the things of each of the others. You must understand that this is in you, which is also in Christ Yahshua, 
who being in the form of Yahweh, regarded it not robbery, that to be equal to Yahweh, yet he made himself of no account, taking a bondman's form, coming in the likeness of men, and in figure being found as a man, because he's God, he humbled himself, being obedient even to death, and the death of the cross, Christ being God incarnate, the image of the person of God, nevertheless esteemed the children of Israel above himself by dying on their behalf. And in that same manner, Christians should esteem their brethren, which is what Paul is teaching there, and it's what Christ had taught. He died for his disciples, and he told them to love because he loved them, and he told them to love each other as he loved them. Now John makes an assertion by which he endeavors to encourage men to love their brethren, because it is the only way that they may come close to God, where he declares that no one has at any time seen Yahweh. And we will break off verse 12 right there, momentarily. While we may never understand why it is so, we read in Exodus chapter 33, where Yahweh addresses Moses, that thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. While in verse 23 of that same chapter, we read, thou shalt see my back parts. We cannot take it for granted that John or the other apostles had interpreted that passage in that same manner, as he bluntly states here, that no one has at any time seen Yahweh. Likewise, Paul described Yahweh God as being invisible. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he wrote, Now to the king of the ages, the incorruptible, invisible, only God, Dignity and honor for eternity, truly. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul recounted the faith of Moses in the face of Pharaoh, whose wrath he could see, and described him as having endured, as seeing him who is invisible. So Paul is explaining that Moses had more fear for the God he could not see than for the Pharaoh whom he could see. Contrary to expectations, most men would instead fear the power of the Pharaoh that they could see. Then Paul described Christ as being the image or the likeness of the invisible God, firstborn of all the creation in Colossians chapter 1. Then, as Paul also explained in Hebrews in chapter 1, Yahshua Christ is the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of his person. Thus we read the words of Christ in the gospel, as it is recorded in John chapter 14. Philip says to him, Prince, show us the Father, and it shall satisfy us. Yahshua says to him, For so long a time I am with you, Philip, and you do not know me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, Show us the Father? God the Father is indeed invisible, but Yahweh God incarnate as the Son is the image of the person of God. He is not his own person, but rather he is God in person. Continuing with verse 12, now John gives us the reason for the declaration that no man has seen God. If we should love one another, Yahweh abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Once again, here John is teaching what Christ had taught as it is recorded in his gospel in John chapter 14, where Christ spoke of the Comforter, or Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I shall ask the Father, and he will give to you another advocate, that it would be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth which society is not able to receive, because it does not see, nor does it know it. You know it, because it abides with you, and it is in you. Then Christ indirectly professed that he himself is both the Father and the Holy Spirit. I shall not leave you fatherless. I come to you. 
Then, where he continues, he himself describes the discerning of spirits, and he says, Shortly yet, and the society shall no longer see me, but you shall see me, because I live and you shall live. On that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He having my commandments and keeping them is he who loves me. Then he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I shall love him and make myself manifest to him. In the closing verses of chapter 3 of this epistle, John had explained in other words the discerning of spirits, and he said, and he keeping his commandments abides in him and he in him. Too many pronouns. And by this we know that he abides in us from of the spirit which he has given to us. Therefore, John makes the same conclusion here in verse 13 of this chapter. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he gave to us from of his spirit. Some of the things which Christ had done in the presence of the apostles must have been done for examples, and it may be more appropriate to interpret some of them symbolically rather than literally. One such instance is in John chapter 20, where Christ had appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, and we read, Then Yahshua said to them again, Peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And saying this, he inhaled and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The errors of any you should forgive, they are forgiven them. Of any you should maintain, they are maintained. With this, we may also understand the binding and loosing of Matthew chapters 16 and 18. Christ had already given that authority to his disciples, as he attested in his words as they were recorded by Matthew. Then the same apostles had received the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 2 of the first Christian Pentecost, which was nearly seven weeks after the resurrection and after the events of John chapter 20, which we have just described. However, here in this passage, which we have just cited from John chapter 14. Speaking of the same Holy Spirit, Christ had said, You know it because it abides with you and it is in you. Yet this is before either of the aforementioned events, that of John chapter 20 or that of Acts chapter 2, where the apostles are described as having received the Spirit. Therefore, in this passage of John chapter 14, Christ must be referring to the Adamic spirit which Yahweh God had imparted to man upon his creation. Of that spirit, Paul of Tarsus also wrote in Romans chapter 8, where he said, The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Of that same spirit, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, and speaking of death, he said, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, in reference to the physical body, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. The fact that when we die, we go to God. David also spoke of that spirit where he pleaded to God in the 31st Psalm, and he said, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Yahweh, God of truth. So in our commentary on that passage in John chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, we wrote in part, The action of Christ here evokes the description of the creation of Adam as it is in Genesis chapter 2. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But here Christ is not breathing into the nostrils of the disciples. Rather, this is only symbolic of the Holy Spirit which they would receive at the first Christian Pentecost, which happened nearly seven weeks later. Therefore, 
where John wrote, because he gave to us from of his spirit, he is likely speaking of the Adamic spirit, which all of the children of God are born with, with which all of the children of God are born. That is the natural, or I'm sorry, the spiritual body of which Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he said, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual and that is the image of God in which man was made, in which Solomon had mentioned in Wisdom chapter 2, where he said that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. That is what the image of God is, the image of his eternity, which he, in which he also made man. I love the Kinists and the Roman Catholics always struggling over the Imago Dei. They sound so intelligent saying Imago Dei. They can't simply just say image of God. They have to give it a Latin term by which to call it. And then they imagine what it is, and they imagine that practically every creature has it, where that's a lie. The image of God is the image of his eternity. And that is what he imparted to the Adamic man. Man is made in God's likeness and his image. The likeness is the physical appearance. The image is the image of his eternity. That is the spirit which was in the apostles before the passion of the Christ had facilitated the sending of the Holy Spirit. Christ himself had stated that he could not send the Holy Spirit until he goes to the Father. As we near the concluding chapter, as we approach, perhaps, I should say, the concluding chapter of this first epistle of John, the apostle will continue to teach his readers how to separate the wheat how the true dichotomies in the world are divided, and how to discern the spirits of men. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.